And uh, we have been going through the, the book of Ezra. We started this several weeks ago. We're about uh, seven weeks into this today. And uh, we started going through the book of Ezra, studying about it. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to pray. And then uh, we'll get to work. I'll give you guys a little bit of a caught up to speed as to where we're at. Uh, we started last week a sermon in, verse, or in chapter 4. And it's really about spiritual adversity or spiritual opposition. Uh, I'll explain what that means in just a minute here. Um, once I started teaching last week, I realized I got a lot of content, so I, has, I, I had a decision to make. Either I teach for two hours or to just kind of cut it in half and uh, save the rest for this week, which is uh, what I decided to do. So basically, this is a continuation of what we started last week, which is uh, Ezra chapter 4, talking about adversity, spiritual opposition. I'm going to pray, and we'll get to work. God, we just thank you that you are here today, that your word is alive, it's powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, means it's able to transform our lives and to separate uh, evil and bad habits from righteousness and godliness. And we ask you right now that you would help us to uh, apply your word to our lives and be transformed and changed by it. And so we commit ourselves into your care right now. Pray, God, more than anything that you would be glorified in our lives. So now, God, just give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see all that you would have for us here this morning. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Ezra chapter 4, if you guys wouldn't mind opening there, Ezra chapter 4, I'll get you guys caught up to speed very fast as to where we were last week, and then we'll jump right back into where we left off. Um, the book of Ezra, as I mentioned and have been mentioning over the past several weeks, is the story about the reconstruction of the sacred temple of the Jews. For about 70 years it lay in ruins. Uh, God's people, the Jews, were judged, and they were taken off into captivity to a particular place called Babylon. Uh, after 70 years they returned, actually around 50,000 of them returned. It was estimated that there might have been about a million to a million and a half, as high as two million Jews that were in Babylon. But all that being said, only 50,000 of them returned on the very first trip. These were a bunch of very brave, heroic, kind of common people just like you and I. But they were just common people that had a desire to do great things for God. So they braved a three to four month journey across the desert, across the wilderness. And they braved moving back into a region where there was no houses. There was no place to live. It was sort of like a refugee camp. A bunch of people returning back to New Orleans Weeks after the flood, all right, no FEMA, all right, and they were in a lot of trouble, a lot of difficulty, they faced a lot of uh, hardships, but they all had the desire that what we're going to do is we're going to work together, we're going to serve God, we're going to reconstruct the temple, we're going to reconstruct the altar, so we're going to worship God, get that going back again very quickly, so chapter 3 was all about them building the, temp, uh, building the altar, and then they basically laid the foundation stones of the temple that was going to be built. So chapter 4, once we got to chapter 4, the work was moving forward. Well, God was blessing. Uh, people were motivated to work. There was just really kind of a freshness of God and His movement upon the people, this 50,000 people that had returned. Uh, it was A lot of good things were happening. They were very excited. There was a lot of eagerness. And the whole motivation behind this was very God-centered. So chapter 4 begins by basically talking about adversity that had come against them. We're told eventually what had happened, and I'll kind of go through the, uh, the uh, specific types of adversity that they had gone through in just a second, but what we said last week was that when God's work gets done, there will be spiritual opposition. All right? Satan will come against, um, and demonic forces will attack, and as we mentioned last week, that if you've ever sort of been in a place where you feel like you're working and serving God, but you feel like you're pushing against a very profoundly powerful force, or you're pushing against a brick wall, and no matter how you feel like you're advancing, you constantly feel as if you're being pushed backwards. And we said last week the reason for that is because there is a spiritual force, Satan and his demonic activity, that is pressuring against against God's advancing kingdom. That's what was happening in Ezra chapter 4. So what we said was this, was C.S. Lewis had this great quote. I'm going to read it to you. It should be up on the screen. And uh, what C.S. Lewis said was this, 
there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall into about the devil. One is to disbelieve in his existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and an unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So C.S. Lewis is essentially saying that Satan and his demons love it when you fall into one or two extremes. He loves it when Christians are always talking about Satan. Loves that. Loves it. You've met that person, right? They drop their coffee. The devil is at work in my life, right? I knew it. You know, if they get cut off while they're driving down the freeway, Satan is trying to hinder me from God's work, right? Maybe it's just some guy who's cut you off, you know? And there's, there, there can be an excessive overemphasis upon demonic activity. C.S. Lewis says Satan loves it when you do that. He loves churches that are constantly talking about Satan, demons, evil, even if it's in a negative light. But he also says, C.S. Lewis does, that the demons are equally happy when Christians just ignore him. Or when people just act as if he doesn't exist. Or it's just, it's not real. He loves it when people fall into both extremes. Okay? Paul's word on this, as we looked last week, is the verse that you'll see up on the screen is this. He says that we are not to be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs, or of his weapons, or the way in which Satan works. Paul is basically saying we need to be careful, because Satan is at work, so we don't want to fall into the extreme of just omitting satanic activity, nor do we want to go to the extreme of always focusing on it. Paul says there has to be some balance, and the balance is that we want to be aware to understand what are the ways in which Satan works, what are the demonic ways in which the enemy are setting up traps for us to fall into. And the reason for this is just so that we don't fall, so we don't trip, right? We had a lot of rain last week, all right? And our roads aren't looking so great, right? Uh, where I get on the freeway, typically right by my house on Lewis Valley Road, there's a spot, and, and I, I don't, I, I, I mean... I know Caltrans workers have a hard time working, period, but over the past week, man, there, there are potholes in the street that are just ginormous. And, and, and I know, I've kind of trained myself that, that if I drive at a particular speed, turning this corner, and I'm not careful, I'll hit it, throw my alignment off, and have to drop another $150, which I don't want to do. So what I try to do is I try to be careful to make sure that I don't hit it. I think what Paul is trying to say is that there are demonic ways in which Satan throws things into our path. We just need to be aware of them. Be aware of them so we don't fall into those traps and ultimately fall prey to Satan's schemes. And I think Satan's schemes are always the same. It's to bring about a stopping of God's work, which is what the last verse of chapter 4 in the book of Ezra talks about. It says, and the work of God ceased. That's Satan's goal. Okay? So I just want, first of all, for you to understand the goal or the purpose of which demonic activity is at work in your life today, right now, especially if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, it's to basically bring you into the lake of fire with himself. He's not your friend. He doesn't have anything to offer you except death, which is what we're already born into. But if you're a believer, if you're a Christian... His job, His goal, His purpose is not to steal your salvation. He can't do that. But what He can do is He can get you to trip, to fall, and so that ultimately what happens is in your Christian life, you're not doing anything for God. You're not effective. Your life is not salt. Your life is not light. Right? You just, you just, you look just like everybody else in the world it just so happens to be that you go to church on Sunday, period. Okay? Now, I have to admit that some of you perhaps fall into that category. That might be some of you today. You might be in that place because whether you knew it or not, Satan tripped you up, he, he, you, you, you got stuck into his trap, you fell, you weren't wise of his designs and of his weapons, you fell, and the work of God is not what it could be in your life today. Okay? Does that make sense? 
that's where we're heading today. So very fast, um, before we even jump into what we sort of recap last, or to recap what we did last week, um, there are three forces. I love the Puritans. I've always read the Puritans. I've always loved and enjoyed the Puritans. Um, they, they write often about three major forces that are always at work, sort of in concert against the believers. They would term it this way, the world, the flesh, and the devil. All right? uh, John would put it this way, the lust of the eyes, um, the, the pride of life. Um, he, he basically would point that these are things that are at work in your life to bring you down. The world, the world system in which we live in, the flesh, meaning our body that we live in, um, the fact is, is that our bodies are not always wanting to do what's right physically, so the flesh, but then also the devil. Satan, his demonic forces are at work. Now, Satan might not be working on you individually, right? He's probably working on more like Billy Graham, you know, guys that are big hard hitters, uh, but he probably has some very qualified people on his payroll working on you right now. Now, if you, as a believer, are, aren't really making an impact on the kingdom of God, he's probably not allocating a lot of his resources on you anyhow, because you're already right where he wants you to be. Okay? So the world, the flesh, and the devil are in cooperation, trying to bring you down, to trap you, to get you to stop doing what God wants you to do. That being said, as a church, I want to say this. I want for our body, our church, to be effective. All right? I've been trying to say this for, for a long time. That it, it's, it's not okay for me, as a pastor, as a leader here, to just simply look at our group as our body, or our body as a church, and just say, all we are is a group of people that do something on Sunday morning, and that's it. That's not the church. That's a gathering. That's a group of people that hang out. The church is a, is a body of believers that says, listen, we are on mission together. We love Jesus. We love each other. We will serve each other. We will serve God. We will lay our lives down, whatever the cost is, because we have a God that's very great. And the enemy is always coming in to try to get us caught up, stumbled, causing us to go off track, to veer left or right, to kind of get away from what God wants us to do. So with that being said, we're going to continue where we left off last week, trying to understand the devices which the enemy uses to trip us up, to get us to stop doing what God wants us to do. All right? So last week what we looked at was this. I'm not going to go into it. You can get the message online. Check it out. First of all, we look in verses 1 through 3. It talks about compromise. They were tempted to compromise. This is a spiritual attack, to get God's people to compromise. Discouragement and fear. When people are sort of in this constant melancholy state, not finding God as being sufficient or being their source of joy, but when God, when, when Satan gets us into a place or the enemy gets us into a place where all we are constantly just living within that current present reality is discouragement and fear, I think the enemy does a great job at keeping us down. Corruption, this is uh, seen in verse 5. Accusations. The enemy loves to accuse. He is actually called the accuser of the brothers and sisters. And then finally, physical force. The last few verses of the chapter talk about um, some of these people coming in and physically forcing them to stop the work of the kingdom. Now that said, I tried to make a distinction last week between two different types or forms of demonic or spiritual activity. There's the common demonic, meaning this is stuff that usually goes under our radar. We just, don't, we just don't think of it as being demonic because we're just, it's so common, all right? Um, we're going to look at a lot of those today, but I'll give you an example of one of them. Um, discouragement and, and fear. It's, just, it's very common. We just don't think. Constantly being discouraged, you mean that's, that's demonic? Yes, it can be. It really, I mean, it can be physical too. I don't want to rule that out as well you know, physiological, but it's also very possibly very demonic. This constant cloud of oppression and depression that just sort of sits over you and keeps you joyless, that can very possibly be demonic, but it's common. So nobody ever looks at it as like, mm, I'm constantly in demonic oppression right now, right? People, we're, we're more prone to see the blatant demonic, 
All right? That is uh, walking in a room and crosses are upside down and people are levitating. Right? Heads are spinning around. Right? You're like, that's demonic. Yes, that's demonic. All right? But so is radical discouragement. That's demonic. So is accusation. That's demonic. So is a host of other things that we'll be taking a look at. So that's what we saw last week. Um, what I want to jump into right now is some other ones that are basically found outside of the book of Ezra that are also means by which the enemy uses to keep us down. Here's one. They're not in any particular order, but here's another one. False teaching. This is one of the most common forms of demonic that we just oftentimes don't ever really register in our mind and say that's demonic. We just don't really think that way, especially because we are wired to think in the culture in which we live in that everything's cool. Everything's okay. It's just another path. It's just another direction. Here's an example. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.1, The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Okay? So what's Paul saying? Is that anybody who believes or follows a different Jesus than the Jesus Paul teaches on is actually a different Jesus. It's a Jesus that has been derived or made by demons. Okay? It's hard for us to think about this, but I'm just trying to read what the Bible says and just make a very little comments on it because it, I think it speaks for itself. Here's another example. 2 Corinthians 11. Paul is concerned about the Corinthians. Um, they live in a very pluralistic society, very similar to, to the world in which we live in, California and so on. And uh, he says this, I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Paul's saying, where I want you to be is in a very pure, simple, loving relationship with God through his son Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. That's what I want you to have. Paul's saying, but I'm concerned for you because it's very possible that you will be led away from that because you're not careful. You're not careful. He says in verse 4, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if we receive a different spirit from the one that you received, Paul's saying basically just turn away from these people. If somebody comes and says, hey, what Paul said, it's not true. It's not true. Paul says, turn away. In Galatians, Paul says this. If anybody comes to you and preaches another gospel than the one that I told you, this would be equivalent to me saying, listen, I'm going on vacation, guys, and gone for two weeks. If anybody comes to you and says, hey, everything that Brian says is wrong, It'd be like me saying, just get up and leave, all right? If you had a stone in your hand, I'd say throw it at them, but then you'll get arrested. It doesn't work. Just leave. Leave the church. Go find someplace else. That's, that's kind of what he's saying. Paul's saying if somebody, I don't care who it is, Paul says even if the main guest speaker is an angel, all right? Can you imagine like an angel walking into the room in all of his glory and effulgence and power and might? We're talking... Major celestial blink. Even if he says Paul's teachings aren't correct. Paul says, let that person be cast out of the assembly. This is really serious stuff. Okay? We live in a culture, very pluralistic, where we are tempted to just simply accept everybody else's perspectives on Christ. We've got to be careful, all right? And, and, and this is something that you have to play out in the world, in the workforce, in your school, in your family, wherever it is that you're at. You've got to work this out on your own to figure out how it plays out because on the one hand, we've got to be careful because we don't want to be that, that person that's always standing up, pointing the finger, being a jerk, Okay? the obnoxious believer that's always saying everybody's wrong. We don't want to believe... I don't think Paul was like that. I don't even think Jesus was like that. But at the same time, we don't want to be the believer that's just like, ah, brother, all roads lead to Jesus. All right, let's just all hang out and just sing songs. Right? Your Jesus is cool. Even though it totally contradicts the Bible, we're all on the same path. Right? Different roads leading up to the same mountain. Right? We're all just feeling another end of the elephant. Right? 
You're touching the tail. I'm holding on the leg. You're touching the trunk. Right? We're, but we're all blind. We're all just touching the same elephant. Right? Just different things. I think Paul would say, no, it's not true. It's not true. We've got to be careful. We've got to be careful on this. Because what happens, the extreme is, is Christians are like, we got the answer. We have full revelation. Be careful. We don't have full revelation. We have enough revelation that God wants us to have through the Son. It's enough to save us. It's not full. It's not exhaustive, is what I'm trying to say. So be careful in the choice of words that you use, because oftentimes Christians are characterized as being, they act like they have it all. They know everything. We don't know everything there is to know about God. But what we do know, revealed to us through Jesus, on the basis of His testimony, is enough to save. Okay? Does that make sense? I'll give you an example of how this worked out. I, I, a few years ago, about two years ago, I was uh, up in Seattle. I was hanging out. Um, it was with my, uh, my in-laws. And uh, it rains a lot up there. And I was literally dying. I was literally, I had no car. And I was like, I'm going to die. I, I couldn't go for a walk anywhere. There's, there's no sidewalks where my, my in-laws live. And, and I'm, I just told my wife, I'm like, I, I'm going to die. Yeah, I've got to get out. I've got to do something. She's like, let me see if I can get you a car. So I took the car, I went down to this little area in this place called Indianola. The only people that live there are uh, reservation Indians and very, very rich people. That's about it. All right, it's right there, on the, uh, right there on the bay. And uh, while I was in this coffee shop, I'm just kind of reading my Bible, hanging out, enjoying it, listening to the rain outside. And uh, there's this guy who comes walking in, good-looking guy, he's, you know, a little bit older than me with his wife, good-looking lady, good-looking kid. I mean, they, they were like, it's like Mrs. Durr and Mrs. Brad Pitt. I mean, they were just, just exceptionally well-dressed. You know, I mean, the stroller had like turbo thrusters on the back. I mean, it's, it was just amazing, all right? So they come walking in, and, and I'm just sitting there just chatting and you know, reading my Bible, and then he starts chatting with me, talking with me, and, and we're kind of, we start dialoguing back and forth, and... You know, he's like, oh, where are you from? And I'm like, from, you know, California and, you know, San Luis. Oh, I've heard of that, you know. So what do you do? I'm a pastor. He's like, oh, really? Interesting. Um, I'm like, what do you do? He's like, I, I'm a motivational speaker. I'm like, really? I, I don't even know what a motivational speaker is. I, I guess I'm kind of that way, but not really. But tell me, like, what do you do? Like, I'm, you know, I'm, my, my attention's perked. And he's like, ah, oh, have you heard of a guy like Anthony Robbins and Deepak Chopra? And I'm like, yeah, I've heard of those guys. Um, you know, he's like, I actually go around the country, speak with those guys. I'm like, oh, that's, that's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm like, what, what's it like? And he's like, well, you know, it's interesting. I've, I have had a religious experience. And he's like, have you, he asked me, he goes, have you ever thought that maybe Jesus is not what the Bible claims he is? I'm like, yeah, I've thought about that, but then I've repented. But, I mean, <laughs> you, you know, I mean, where, where you go, what do you mean? And, and he's like, you know, let me tell you a story. I'm like, how'd you get into this? He's like, the way I got into this was, uh, I was going to UC San Diego, and I had a really just rough you know, month. I was not doing good. My life was at the bottom place it could ever be. And I, I went out, I was sitting over the cliffs. You know, there's a search button on it called Cliffs. And, and he, goes, he goes, I was sitting out overlooking these cliffs, and all of a sudden, this, this, this UFO, this, this light came, unidentified flying object, you know, came out of the sky and came to me. And for two hours, I sat in a trance, and it was Jesus. Like, interest, like, what did he say to you? He's like, he told me that the Bible's wrong. And I'm like, really? Like, and I'm just listening to him. I'm like, okay. I mean, is it possible? Has it at all crossed your mind that maybe that really wasn't Jesus, but it was a demon dressed in Jesus' clothing? I mean, is, I mean, is it possible that could have been an angel of light? The Bible talks about an angel of light. And he goes, I never really thought about that, but he goes, I felt so good by it. It changed my life. He goes, it, it was that experience that led me to write a book that led me to where I'm at today. Speaking at all these things. I'm like, wow. I just, I'm like, before we left, you know, I'm just like, I, I would just challenge you to think. There are demons. And they look really good. A lot of times. I, most of them don't wear red tights. But... The one that you saw, I think, looked like Jesus. Maybe even call himself Jesus. But I, says, I think you just got to think about that. There is the very big possibility that you could have been deceived by something very powerful, but not God. Okay? Here's what I want to say. False doctrine is demonic. That means the Jesus 
that's out of Mormonism is a doctrine of demons. That means Oprah's Jesus is a demonic Jesus. Islam's Jesus is a demonic Jesus. Okay? You say, do you, you hate Mormons? Do you hate... Mo-? No, I don't. In fact, I think a lot of them are, are very good people. I think they're very good people. But what happens is the leadership have been deceived. And you have blind people leading blind people. Okay? Really, they're no different than where we were because we were all blind at some point until God opened our eyes and we saw. We don't claim to have exhaustive knowledge of God, but what we do claim to know about Jesus is enough to save. And we also do know that there is enough information to realize that there is the possibility that Satan and his demons will create or recreate new Jesuses for the days and age in which we live. But they're new Jesuses and they're sourced in demonic activity. If so false teaching is demonic. The next one is this. Next one is this. Uh, bitterness. This is, this is demonic. Listen to what it says. Ephesians, I, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to try to work this through for you so you understand it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 26 says this. Be angry. Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Okay? So here's what I think Paul's saying. There is an anger. There is a way to be angry. That's okay. In fact, sometimes I think Christians are misled into being taught, you know, you shouldn't be angry. Christians should always just be loved. But do you know that love, when you truly love, sometimes a righteous response to love being violated or molested is anger. Angry is a proper response to violation of love. Right? So if you knew somebody who was raped or is molested by a child, and you got very angry by that. That's justifiable. It really is. It's justified anger. I think God's angry. Very angry with that stuff. Okay? But what happens is when anger is not carefully checked, anger can become bitterness. It can become bitterness if it's not carefully watched. That's why Paul then says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Because what happens is, he says, is that this could be an opportunity to give an, oppor- an opportunity or a foothold to the devil. I want you to think about foothold in the same form as being like a, if you're a rock climber. It doesn't take a lot for a rock climber to scale a very big mountain. It just takes tiny little footholds. He's looking for any tiny little foothold that he can put his foot in, something which he can grab a hold of, and it just takes him to scale the mountain until he's to the top. That's what Satan is doing. He's looking for any little foothold, any little opportunity to scale you, to bring you down. It is a demonic response that's not kept in check. Here's what he goes on. I want to to work through this a little bit. What does it mean to get bitter? Why do I get bitter? What's the distinction between bitterness and anger? Okay, again... You can be angry and not sin. There is a way in which you can actually have anger but not be in sin. It means you can be righteous. Jesus, there was times, had anger. The Bible talks about the wrath of God. God has wrath, but He's not a sinner. So bitterness is this. The way bitterness comes about is if, I'll use myself as the example, if you sin against me, if you do something to me, and I refuse to forgive you. Let's say you say, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean to you know, hurt you, Um, that's not what I meant. And if I choose to say, I'm not going to forgive you, I will be prone to becoming bitter. Here's another example. If you, or if I think you sin against me, but you really didn't, and again, I choose to not forgive, then I can become bitter. Have you ever met people like that? You know, maybe in a circumstance, um, maybe they can go on for several weeks, really frustrated with you, and then you kind of sit down and you talk with them, you work it through a little bit, and they're like, well, the reason why you know, I'm so frustrated is because you said this. And you're like, I, I didn't say that. That's, that's not what happened. They're like, what? I thought you said... And they're like, no, I didn't say that. You know? And all of a sudden you begin to realize, it's like this light turns on, you realize all of it was built upon sort of a non-existent argument. But bitterness still existed there. Here's another one. Bitterness can come when there's something that I feel like I deserve that I don't have. Okay? 
In other words, I feel I'm deserving of something that I'm not being able to be given the opportunity to, to have. I'll give you an example of the way that I've watched this work out within our church over 15 years of being a pastor. Um, people will come in periodically, and they'll, they're excited. They want to serve. They want to help you know, be a part of the body and be a part of what's happening in the church. And So they willfully, sacrificially give it themselves. They're great people, love Jesus, love other people in the service. That's why they're doing that. But what happens, and it's always different for different people, and sometimes some people never deal with this, sometimes some people do. But sometimes I've watched people where they, there's a sort of season of time where in their mind they begin to think, you know, I deserve more. You know, I, I, should, I should be recognized by the leadership, right? Someone should ask me my decisions or my opinion on things and instead of just giving me a chair to set up or break down. Or, you know, how come I can't get a, a staff job? And why can't I be on staff or get some sort of money or some recognition or something for this? And what happens is this, this service to God that started out now begins to move into a sense where you think that you should be getting something, but you're not getting it, and you're frustrated. It leads to bitterness. It leads to a sense of like, I'm, I'm, I'm really upset. It's jealousy. Right? It's jealousy. And that leads to bitterness. I'll give you an example of how this sort of plays out with the rest of the verse. Paul goes on, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, jumps down to verse 30, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, okay? So he says, let bitterness, what happens oftentimes is I think there's sort of a progression here. Bitterness can lead to wrath, where you're just like, you're visibly angry. It's just angry. You know, it's just like, you know, somebody hits you the wrong way and all of a sudden just like, wrath comes out, you're like, what's your problem? You know? And maybe you start giving your opinion about things and nobody like ever asked for the opinion and all of a sudden it's just like it just comes out. There's a gal by the name of Amy Carmichael over the past uh the last summer my, my family I started kind of reading. She's got this tiny little book called If, right? And it's it's just filled with all these great little sayings. She was an amazing missionary that lived in um India and uh started some great works around the world. And this, this gal, she, she writes and she says, um, if, if I, I'm not going to botch this, but if I'm filled with sweet water and somebody bumps me, what will fall out? Sweet water. But if I'm filled with bitter water and somebody bumps me, bitterness will fall out. So here's what happens. Here's what I think she's trying to communicate in that. Is that really, when bitterness comes pouring out of my life, you can't say necessarily it's because somebody put it in there. It was probably already there. You just got bumped. And out it came. So bitterness, Paul says, put away, along with wrath, being angry, clamor, slander. He says, put that away. Slander is like you're talking about people, gossiping about people. This comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes, right? Nowadays, it's like instant messaging people about People, right? Um, and then he says, with malice. I think malice is sort of this idea when we wish ill upon people. It's like, you hear bad news about somebody, oh, they got really sick, really sick. And somewhere in the back of your mind, you're like, good, they deserve that. I hope they die from that. I hope it gets worse. I hope they never, I hope they have, I hope it turns terminal. Okay? That's malice. It's like this idea that you're willing to just wish the worst of evil upon somebody because it all starts from just simple bitterness. I'm offended. I won't forgive. I think I'm offended, but I won't forgive. Or there's something that I want that I'm not getting. So I'm bitter. People live like this. People live like this. And Paul says, don't give a place to the devil. In all honesty, the majority of counseling that I do, whether it be in marriages or in people that are just struggling with real difficult things going on in their life, usually, almost always, somewhere along the line, there's this connection where they're bitter with somebody somewhere. Somewhere. You know, maybe it was a... You know that you don't get bitter with people that you don't know? It's usually the people that you welcome into your life that you get bitter with. Someone were to walk up to you, you never met them before, 
and they just punched you in the face right now. You'd be angry, but you wouldn't get bitter. Right? If the person that punched you in the face was your mom, right? And she did it again after saying sorry, or your husband, or you know, somebody that you knew that you were close to, you would walk away and think, what's their problem? Why are they doing this to me? You know, and now you're prone to get bitter with them. Because there's somebody you love, somebody you care for, somebody you have trusted, and they let you down. Like, Brian, how do you know all about this? This is my life. And in all honesty, I mean, this is my life. Sherry and I deal with this all the time. People always having certain expectations of me. Brian, are you going to do this? Are we going to hang out? We can, you know, what, I mean, eat ice cream. I mean, what, can we do something together? And I'm not able to always do everything with everybody. And people get frustrated. But it's not just the, oh yeah, I forgive. But it's, I'm bitter. I'm bitter. And bitterness is demonic. It's sourced in evil. Do you know that God is not bitter at all? Ever. Ever. God is always full of love. Sometimes that love responds in wrath. But God doesn't walk around carrying a grudge. This is why God says, stop being bitter. Put away this root of bitterness. Here's the next verse that I want to read with regard to bitterness. And James says this, chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, he says, don't be boastful, don't be proud, and be false to the truth. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but this is earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where jealousy, selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And when you have a church and people are bitter, that's what happens. The enemy is free to just hang out and do whatever he wants. I want you to get that image in your mind that where where there is bitterness allowed to reside in your heart, just imagine Satan hanging out right in your ranks, worshiping, maybe singing the songs, not meaning them, but just right there in the midst. And you have a church that's just completely, completely devoid of power. Okay, Here's another one. After bitterness, I want us to see also deception and lies is... No doubt, definitely something that Satan brings about. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it says this, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Satan is called the deceiver. His job, his role, his resume is filled with very long list of people he's deceived. Maybe your name's on that. Okay? And... His job is to bring about deception. The idea of deception is to steer you away from what's true. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm truth, come to me. I will set you free. The truth will set you free. Satan is saying, don't go there. That's not right. Go here. Do this. Believe this. Follow this. Just deal with what's in your heart. That's, that's what you live, what you feel. Okay? And what happens is he will deceive us. He will deceive us into making us feel or causing us to feel justified for bitterness that we have, frustration that we feel. He will convince us to feel this, and it's part of this deception that he brings about. Okay? One other thing I forgot to mention as far as bitter people. Um, you, will, you, know, you can ask the question, how do you know if you're bitter? A great way to know if you're bitter is bitter people are excellent historians. Okay? They're excellent at history. They're the type of people you can ask, you know, are you bitter? Like, no, I'm fine, everything's great, I forgave them, right? You ask them, like, what happened? And they're able to tell you every little thing to every detail to the sweater the dude was wearing, all right? Everything. Like, what song was playing around in the background? What Every little detail they can tell you, because that's what bitterness does. It causes you to move on, and you're deceived in the sense of thinking, it's okay, It's okay for me to be bitter, for me to be angry, because after all, this is what they did to me. The response, I think Paul would say, this is, I mean, we can spend a whole message on this, I'm not. But the response that Paul would say, he says, 
vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Paul's response to this is, you may feel like you want to get payback. And part of your payback is in the form of bitterness. This plays out in a marriage. Plays out in a marriage by a woman saying, you hurt me, I won't have sex with you again. I won't have sex with you again. And she uses her body as a weapon against him. All right? The guy says, fine, you hurt me, I'll download porn. I don't care. And it's this mentality of going back and forth, back and forth, living in this deception, and Satan's at the center of it all. And I think the gospel comes and says, be free from that. Be set free from that. Paul would say this in 2 Corinthians with regard to deception and lies. Now back to this, verse 3 of chapter 10. Even though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So I think what here's Paul saying is that deception is a very real uh, pothole in the road of life. If we're not careful about it, we can easily be taken out by, our alignment's out, we're, just, we're off path. So the way that you get back on path, I think what Paul would say, is the same way in which you get rid of darkness out of your life. The way that you get rid of darkness is you turn on the light. The way that you get rid of deception is you get into the truth. You get into the truth. You let the truth set you free. You read the Word of God. You study God's Word. You claim Bible promises. You meditate on Scriptures. You get Bible studies that are going to teach you about God's Word. You let the Word of God set you free. That's what is what's going to cleanse you and remove you from that thing of deception where Satan is. Okay? All right. Next one is this. Unchanged hearts. Unchanged heart. Mark chapter 4, verse 15. Jesus is given a parable here. It's called the parable of the uh, sower. And in the parable, you know, some of you are probably familiar with it. Jesus says, uh, the sower goes around, he scatters seed here and there. And, you know, some of the seed grows up and it's a beautiful crop. Some of it grows up and, you know, it gets stepped on. And some of it grows up and weeds come up and choke it out. And then he says, you know, some of it comes up and just, you know, just dies. This is what he says in uh, verse 15. He ends up going back, hanging out with his disciples. And they're, they're a little bit confused. They ask him, Jesus, tell us a little bit about what you meant. We had no clue. We're totally lost. We lost you on, and Jesus said, okay, we lost you. And can you tell us? And Jesus says, yeah, I'll tell you. He says, and these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. So the guy casts the seed on the wayside. It's sown down there. And it says, and when they heard, Satan comes immediately. And he takes away the word that is sown in their hearts. So the point that Jesus is going to make about this, or uh, trying to communicate about this, is that in a very real way, like example right now, God's word is going out. It's being sown in people's hearts. The reality is some of you are going to hear this stuff. You're going to repent. You're going to realize the weightiness of areas in your life that are out of sync with God. You'll change. You'll ask God for forgiveness. Some of you will hear these things and... Come 12 o'clock, all you can think about is French fries. Right? It's about all you're going to think about, or a burrito, or something other than the Word of God. And, and by 6 o'clock tonight, you won't even be thinking about God's Word. It will be so far from your heart. In other words, what will happen is there will be no change, no transformation, no effect upon your life. Jesus says the reason for that is because sometimes Satan comes and he takes the seed. Takes the seed. It's gone. That's profound. That's powerful to think that the reason why some of you are never changing, never changing in your life, even though you can sit in Bible study after Bible study and hear the Bible preached and taught and nothing changes, Satan just keeps coming and taking the seed. Just keeps coming. Takes it away. No change. Unaffected. Next one is this. Here's one that's going to definitely ruin some of your evenings. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For at one time you walked in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So here's what he's doing. He's setting the stage. He's saying, listen, you are Christians. You're believers. Now that you're in Christ, you used to walk in the darkness. Don't walk in the darkness anymore. What's in the darkness? Paul earlier qualifies this by basically saying, the prince of the power of darkness is Satan. Satan. Right? He has power over darkness. That's his domain. That's where he lives. And people who follow him are metaphorically, spiritually, really in darkness. Okay? And he's saying, now that you're in light, don't walk by the deeds of your life according to the deeds which you used to walk formerly in darkness. That's what he says in verse 10. And try to discern what's pleasing to God. In other words, try to understand what God's doing. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 18, he jumps all the way down and he brings all this stuff back and he says, and do not be drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So here's what I think Paul's saying, is that being drunk is a satanic attack upon your soul. Satanic. Okay? I want you to think about this, because some of us in our culture, we just think, no big deal. It's no big deal. But I think what Paul's trying to communicate is that to walk in darkness is equivalent to being affected, impacted by satanic spiritual attack upon our souls, upon our lives. So Paul's way out of this is to say, don't be drunk, which is debauchery. I, I, I like the way that he's trying to word this. It's basically, it's a very low form of life, right? It's a low form of life. And I think he's juxtaposing that up to, don't live low, live high. Don't, don't live like the rest of people that don't have life. Live like children of God. Live like children of the King. Fill with the Spirit. Serve one another. Love one another. Care for one another. But the point of the matter is, is that being drunk is not just a sin. All right, I can be up here and do my like regular Christian thing and just start pointing out sin, sin, sin. But it's even bigger than that. It's a satanic attack against the church to keep us out of light. To keep us broken. To keep us down. Next one is this. Idleness and gossip. Alright? Idleness and gossip. Let's read it. 1 Timothy 5.13 This is directed towards women, I have to be honest. Okay? Sorry. Um, I'm not making this up. I'm just reading the text. Um, Paul is writing to Timothy, but he's writing to Timothy specifically about women and their mouths. Okay? Um, I'll just read it. I'll make very little comment. And you can do the rest. He says, They learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but they're also gossips and busybodies, saying what they shouldn't. For some, listen, listen, some have already strayed to Satan. This is not just women who have a lot of extra time on their hands, because this is going to be guys too. This is not just people trying to figure out how to navigate through a downsized economy. What do I do with my time? Paul says, this is satanic. This is evil. It's demonic. And some have already bought into it. So what's a busybody? I think the picture is this. is somebody who's always straying into somebody else's business. All right? This is the person who's always like, so what's going on in your life? What's happening? And they're really not... You know, sometimes it comes in the guise of like, they're just prayer requests. Okay? Uh, yeah, I'm going through this. Like, next thing you know, they blog about you. You're like... Are you kidding me? You know, it's, that hasn't happened to me. But just, you know, the point I'm making is that it's a sense of like being in other people's businesses. And then he says, gossips. Gossips. 
Right? This is in the form of like, calling someone up, you know, the old picture, and somebody on the phone be like, did you hear so-and-so? Yeah, did this. But this is also in our day, like texting. Did you hear OMG? Can you believe it? You know, <laughs> did you, i got to tell you what I just heard. And it's sort of like, we got to pray for that girl. Right? It comes out in the forms of just gossip and being a busybody. And I think Paul's just simply saying, you've got to understand, this is demonic. I want to give you a picture. Right? It may not be the best picture, but it's a picture of Noah. Noah gets off of the ark, immediately goes to work, building a vineyard. After he builds a vineyard, harvests the grapes, makes wine, choice wine, enough to where he's able to get drunk on it. He's laid out, stone cold, drunk, in the middle of his tent, and one of his, younger, one of his sons is standing there staring at him, not doing anything. You know, whatever he did, doesn't tell us what he did, but whatever he did was shameful. And what happens is the other sons of Noah come walking in and they cover up Noah's nakedness. Right? The first guy, rather than covering Noah's nakedness, what, I don't, don't let your mind wander too far on what was happening here, but whatever it was was shameful. And it was not covering up the wickedness of his dad. What happens in the church is we are prone to exploit people's problems. Maybe they're going through something or whatever. Rather than covering someone else's nakedness or sin or shame, we talk about it. It comes out like in little emails or little, you know, like I said, prayer meetings or other things of that nature. But what happens is I think Paul's word is be careful. This is leading into a demonic realm that will bring about gossip, destruction of people's lives. And it's demonic. Okay? Here's another one. Some of you right now might be thinking, <clears throat> deception, not me. I know the truth. I read the Bible every day. Some of you are like, drunkenness. That's the dude next to me, not me. I drink near beer. Well, good for you. Awesome. All right? Dosakis. All right, good. I'm glad for you. Praise Jesus. All right? Uh, you might be like, man, I never get discouraged because I always keep a stiff upper lip and I just smile a lot and say, praise the Lord. All right? Well, good for you. You're probably guilty of this one. Pride. Pride. You're probably guilty of this one. Here's what Isaiah says. It's a message about Satan. Many scholars believe, talking about Satan. It says this. How you are fallen from heaven, the day star, sun of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars. I will set my throne on high, I will sit on the mount of assembly, the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High God. But you are brought down to Sheol, or hell, to the far reaches of the pit. Why? Satan's sin was pride. Satan's sin was pride. And that's equally the sin of other people that look at other people with critical attitudes, and say, that's not me. Right? This is the irony of being in this world, right? Because you can either be some straight-up tar-smoking crack addict, and you realize, I'm a mess! Or you can be somebody that's like, I never touch this stuff, I never drink anything stronger than milk, and I read my Bible every day, I'm always memorizing and quoting Scripture, and you're prideful. You're just as bad as the worst guy. And it is all a part of a demonic attack upon the church to keep us stopped in our tracks than moving forward and showing forth the glory of God. Alright, what's our way out of this? How do we deal with this? How do we move on? I want to finish with this. I want to finish with this. I want you guys to turn your Bible real quick to a Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. In fact, I'm going to have uh, Chris coming up. He'll be ready to lead us in some words in just a second. Here, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Last book of your Bible. He says, In the great dragon that was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who's called the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him, and then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now 
the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that he has very short time. Here's what the writer of Revelation is basically saying, is that Satan, that great deceiver, he is a defeated foe. But even though he is defeated, he still is very powerful, and he still moves and still works. But the issue that I want to leave in our minds before we, move, well, before we go, before we do anything, is I want for us to not to have this over exalted perspective of Satan and his power. Is he a powerful adversary? Yes. Is he strong? Yes. But God's stronger. God's won. God's victorious. That's the point that he's trying to communicate. That's why he says, therefore rejoice, because your God has conquered. Here's one more verse. Okay, uh, Romans, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read this and I'm going to finish up right here. Romans chapter 8. It says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all, how, shall, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If it is God who justifies, who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he has been raised and he was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The next passage, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, read that, nor demonic activity, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing, and all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, to the glory of God. Amen! I mean, that's amazing! That's one of those truths that we can actually go Pentecostal over and be okay on. Because the reality is that yes, we have an adversary that's very powerful. And he may have trapped some of you even now. And the gospel comes and says to you, speaks to you, empowers you, says arise. Stretch forth your hand. Arise. Get out of the grave. Arise. Put down the things that God has died for you for. Arise, lay aside bitterness. Because Jesus has cleansed you. We have an amazing God that is so powerful. That's what I want us to walk away with. Not how great Satan is. I want to be ignorant of it, but I want to walk away with an understanding of our God. It's greater still. He'll sustain you. He'll support you. He will save you. And He will give you the ability to fight against those weapons that are formed against you. To cast aside bitterness. To leave behind gossip. To fight off drunkenness. To fight off affliction. To be victorious. Paul's word is this. We are more than conquerors. Literally in the Greek, it's super conquerors. Super conquerors. Don't you love that? Does that describe you today? Hope so. If not, we're going to worship. We're going to respond to the Lord. We're going to give our tithes, our offerings. We're going to sing. We're going to praise Him. We're here today to worship. Okay, That's why we're here. Singing is not just marginal. It is why we're here, to worship God. We're going to pray. We're going to sing. 
worship, lift up our songs, lift up our praise. Hopefully some of you are going to get set free today from vices that are holding you down. Hopefully we'll go out of here as a church very strong to leave an impact upon a very dark city that's in need of Jesus. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We worship you now. Everything was laid at your feet at the cross. Our sin was on your shoulders. You bore the weight of our sin for us. We just confess, Lord, we need your help to be victorious. We look to you even now. 